For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. In the title of our sermon, Salvation Belongs to Our God, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. And it's uh, wonderful to be, to be back with you now, finally, on, uh, in our study of Revelation on Sunday evenings. Uh, we took a brief break with so much going on at the end of the year, but I trust that you are ready to dig in once again as we continue to work through this book together. Uh, as we've stated previously, the book of Revelation is a book meant to encourage the church in her tribulation to encourage the people of God in their time of testing in the wilderness, so to speak. The Lord's concern as the Lord walks in the midst of the lampstands is a faithful and persevering witness. That's our charge, a faithful and persevering witness. We are to shine as lights in a dark place. Uh, The Lord's concern is that we overcome as a faithful and persevering witness until the end. He's concerned that she, her, his church, endures persecution, endures trial, endures suffering, trials and suffering, persecution that comes from without, and trials and difficulties that arise from within. We are in the midst of a period of time that the Bible continuously refers to as a time of testing, as a time of tribulation, and we are charged, brothers and sisters, with overcoming. Now, as we come through that, uh, through the book, we've arrived at chapter 6, near the end of this uh, second literary cycle uh, in the book, and we are brought at the end of chapter 6 to the return of Jesus Christ and the great day of his wrath, that great day of his wrath that's signified in the opening of the sixth seal, where in chapter 6, verse 15, the Bible reads, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich man, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, they hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? Chapter seven then is an interlude that essentially answers that question. Who is able to stand? In consideration of God's great wrath against sin, in consideration of his righteous judgment that is going to be poured out on all mankind, chapter 7 then explains how it's possible that we see in our text tonight a multitude which no man can number from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And they are seen as standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So in answer to the question, who is able to stand? The people of the Lamb are able to stand. They are those seen standing before the Lamb. Those whom he has purchased with his own blood, those whom he has preserved to himself that he might raise them up at the last day, those whom he has sealed. Not one of them will be lost. Every one of them will be standing before the throne. With John, we first hear the number of those who have been sealed, 144,000. And the people of God, in that picture painted there in in Revelation chapter uh, 7, the people of God described in their earthly sojourn, so to speak, pictured typologically as the encamped tribes of Israel prepared for battle, the church in the wilderness, so to speak, the church during her time of testing. We might think of this group again as the church militant. 
the people of God, the church, as followers of the lion from the tribe of Judah. And then after having uh, heard with John the number of those who were sealed, then with John we turn and we see the people of God as described in their heavenly worship. Two perspectives on the people of God. Those who have come out of the great tribulation now in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Those who have endured to the end. Those whom he has preserved for himself. They're pictured here as a great multitude around the throne of every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. The church in the worship of heaven. The church having endured. The church having overcome. They've been given the crown of life. And we might think of this group as the church triumphant. The church having entered her rest those who have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the sacrificial lamb. So think with me and make the connection that the scripture, I think, intends for us to make here. Two perspectives of Jesus Christ from chapter 5, the lion and the lamb, and now two perspectives on the people of God. The, those prepared for battle on earth following the lion from the tribe of Judah and those redeemed in heaven worshiping the lamb. Two perspectives of the people of God. So, what John hears then, and what John turns and sees. And we see in that the shadow connected to its substance. The physical is seen as fulfilled in the spiritual. From that which merely pointed to heavenly realities, to the consummation of those realities as secured through the person and work of the Son. Shadow connected to substance. Promise connected to fulfillment. That interlude then, the interlude of chapter 7, meant to encourage the church. Uh, consider those things. Consider those pictures, those perspectives. It serves to comfort the people of God. It should, as you meditate on those things, it should assure us uh, that God is in control. God is sovereign over these things and that he is working all things to their appointed end. No matter what happens, God is able to keep that which we have committed to him against that day. No one and no thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, tonight, we come then to John's vision of the church triumphant in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things, in other words, immediately after what John has just heard, not necessarily chronological to the sixth seal or chronological to the sealing of the saints, but chronological in what John experiences. John hears... And then immediately after these things, John turns and he sees, right? And what John sees then after these things is majestic. It is a wondrous sight, a glorious sight. Verse 9, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Awesome. An awesome sight, <laughs> and one that is, uh, we should be meditating on and thinking about. And brothers and sisters, this is in fulfillment of a promise. This, this language here is in fulfillment of God's promise. This is not mere abstract language on the part of John for a lot. Listen, there were a lot of people there. It's not just a lot. This is meant, this language meant to capture the glory, if you will, of God's faithfulness to his promise. And what promise is that exactly? If you think with me about 
the Bible. Think with me about God's promises. It's the promise that he originally made to Abraham. To Abraham, right? Descendants as innumerable as the stars in heaven, as innumerable as grains of sand on all the seashores of the earth. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. This is in fulfillment of God's promise. You know, there, there are many times in the Bible, uh, Old Testament in particular, where we see uh, the num- numbers become um, important. We see um, Israel's numbers dwindled during the period. We talked about judges this morning um, in our calls uh, during the order of service. And during the period of the judges, when Israel was idolatrous and sin against God, we saw, saw their numbers continuously dwindled to the point where in the book of Judges, Israel could not even defend itself, uh, certainly couldn't do anything to protect itself. Their numbers had dwindled so severely. When Israel was sent into exile, they were sent into exile. You see the, the record or the account there of those that came back from Babylon, and it's a small number compared to those that went out to Babylon. Uh, they had been greatly diminished during their exile. And so for all of that, though, for all of that, God is faithful to his word. And so as we see um, the church, as it were, through the Testaments, and now the church in her worship in heaven, all of those whom God has redeemed from the four corners of the earth throughout redemptive history, innumerable, innumerable. We might be able to see them with the eyes of faith, but we can't count them, right? Too many to count. It's an awesome picture. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Behold, The word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said to Abram, look, look now toward heaven, count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. The faithfulness of God to his word. And Abram believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Revelation chapter 7, the promise of God to Abraham, to Abraham. That promise was reiterated to Isaac. The promise would later be reiterated to Jacob. Jacob, in in Genesis chapter 32, recounts God's promise. Look, God, how you've grown. He was fearful of Esau, and yet his family had grown into two lots, uh, two groups. And uh, Jacob was considering that, Genesis chapter 32, I think it's verse 9 there, uh, considering that in fulfillment of God's promises to multiply descendants to Abraham. And we see that throughout of the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 33. Turn there with me. Jeremiah 33. There are multiple places where this promise is repeated. uh, Repeated by the patriarchs, the fathers, repeated by the prophets. And we see one particular place in Jeremiah chapter 33 where, um, again, this is going to be a promise that reaches its final consummation in this picture that we see, this vision that we see in Revelation 7. Jeremiah 33, begin there at verse 19. 19. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will uh, not be day and night in their season, 
then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant. In other words, my covenant with David, my servant will never be broken. Do you see? Never be broken, broke, broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. Verse 22, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. It's a, it's a repeat, if you will, a reiteration of God's promise, the promise that God made to, to Abraham and now repeats to David. It's interesting there. He's going to multiply the descendants of David the king, and he's going to multiply Levites to minister to him. And how are we described, brothers and sisters, how are we described in the New Testament? We're described as a royal priesthood. We are a nation of king priests to our God. It's an awesome picture of the faithfulness of God to his word. Do you see? You think about it with me. Um, when the Lord Jesus Christ is baptized in the River Jordan, why is the Lord Jesus Christ baptized in the River Jordan? I believe that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is baptized because the Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and men. He is the man Christ Jesus. And in his mediatorial office, his mediatorial office is a threefold office, office prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Who did they baptize in the Old Testament? They baptized the priests. They baptized Levites for service. They cleansed them in their service to God. Why is it, brothers and sisters, when we um, come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, why is one of the, the covenant symbols of our relationship to God, why is it believer's baptism? It's because we are baptized, as it were, consecrated to God as priests to our God. We are a royal priesthood. It's a fascinating connection, and I commend that to your own study. God is faithful to his word. Amen? God is faithful to his word. And everywhere we see this promise repeated, we see it here now consummated in Revelation chapter 7. He promises that seed... In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and he does so in the midst of his own curse against the serpent. Adam then names uh, the woman Eve because she is going to be the mother of all living. That's what Eve means. Then he promises Abraham that a seed would come from him and that through Abraham, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. The Lord said that Abraham, even though Abraham never saw that promise fulfilled in his own day, the Lord himself said of Abraham that he saw my day and rejoiced. Do you remember from the Gospels? Saul rejoiced to see the coming of his day. Abraham saw that with the eyes of his own faith. The promised seed of Abraham now has indeed come. It is the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Through faith in him, all those who place, place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation are the spiritual seed of Abraham. Isn't that what Paul says, Romans chapter 2? Those who put their faith and trust in Abraham are the spiritual seed of Abraham. And that, brothers and sisters, is an innumerable host, a countless mass of redeemed humanity. Certainly can't number it. Number it. Now, a couple of reasons for that. First, from our text, is to the praise of the glory of his grace. When we see that multitude gathered around the throne singing praises to God and to the Lamb, that is to the praise of the glory of his grace. A great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Not a multitude without exception, but a multitude without distinction. 
and a great multitude at that. The second, can you think with me, can you see how that multitude then magnifies his grace in the sense that it humbles man. God is no respecter of persons. No respecter of persons. It magnifies God's grace in the sense that it humbles man. It is a multitude, a vast multitude without distinction. And that language, this language, this fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham is also seen in God's promise of including the Gentiles. This language also seen in fulfillment of the Gentile inclusion. Look at Hosea, the prophet Hosea with me. Hosea, Hosea chapter 1. How is it that God would fulfill his promise to Abraham in that through Abraham, all of the families of the earth would be blessed? It's in this way. And when you see that multitude gathered around the throne from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation, it's in fulfillment of that very promise that all, without distinction, all of the families of the earth through Abraham would be blessed. Hosea chapter 1, look at verse 10. Yet, verse 10, the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head. And they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Awesome. Now, the Lord is just rebuking Israel for their sin, for their idolatry by naming Hosea's kids, not my people, and no mercy, right? Uh, Rough names for your kids. Um, Israel, uh, God is rebuking Israel for their idolatry, for their sin against him. But then he makes this promise in Hosea chapter 1 of their restoration, and in their restoration they shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, And there in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Now we know, we're going to find out very soon, this is fulfilled in Romans chapter 9. Turn to Romans chapter 9 with me. For great will be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel is a word that means God's sowing or God has sown. What has God sown? God has sown his people in the field of this world. And out of the field of this world, God will reap a harvest. And we see that harvest displayed in Revelation chapter 7, gathered around the throne, worshiping. It is a great day of Jezreel, a day where God takes his people uh, from the land, so to speak. We see again the promise fulfilled, Romans chapter 9. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not only of the Jews but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Awesome, right? What's uh, fascinating and just thrilling and amazing about that passage is that Paul 
interprets the text for us from Hosea chapter 1. A text that was spoken to the children of Israel in Hosea chapter 1, Paul interprets that as fulfilled in the inclusion of the Gentiles being brought into the church of the living God, right? The inclusion of the Gentiles. In other words, (sighs) salvation was never meant to be Jews on a little strip of land east of the Mediterranean. The salvation of our God is a mass, innumerable multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. No one can number as great as the the number of grains of sand on the seashore and of the stars in the heaven of all types of people without distinction, without distinction. All true Israelite descendants of Abraham. Do you see? All of them true Jews, as it were, true Israelite descendants of Abraham, descendants of Abraham by faith in God's Messiah, by faith in the promised seed. And in our union with him, we are spiritual Jews together with him, spiritual Israelites, as it were, descendants of Abraham. Now, regarding this great innumerable multitude in heaven then, John records what he sees and then what he hears. First, with respect to what he sees, verse 9. This group, they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. In other words, they're in the presence of God. They're in the presence of God. There is no middle wall of separation any, any longer. If you remember that from Ephesians chapter two, that middle wall of separation has been torn down. Gentiles have now flooded into the church as it were. And that multitude, a multitude from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation, that multitude is standing before the throne of God in the heavenly temple. In the holy of holies, in the most holy place, we see this throng, this multitude gathered in worship. In the very, the very location where God sits in majesty. In other words, no separation. No separation. They are clothed there in white robes. White robes signifies their righteousness, their moral purity. And in particular here from the context, their moral purity resulting from perseverance through testing. These are the overcomers. Look at verse 13. Revelation chapter 7 Drop down to verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? Where do they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. In other words, washed clean in the blood of the Lamb and having persevered through their time in the great tribulation. In uh, chapter 3, if you turn back to chapter 3 with me, it's this very thought that was communicated in in verse 4 to the church at Sardis. In verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ says to this church at Sardis, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. In other words, who are those who are clothed in white robes? Those are the ones who have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the lamb. They've been justified through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ's atonement has been applied to them through the instrumentality of faith, and they've been made righteous. 
having been made righteous through a genuine, fruitful faith, a true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that faith then produces perseverance. These are those who overcome through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the victory that has overcome this world? Our faith, amen? So these are those who have placed genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are those who have persevered through testing, through trial. These are the ones who make it to the end, so to speak. They are the overcomers. In verse 13 and 14, they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Their robes, their white robes, signify or symbolize the status that they enjoy before God himself. Think about that with me. Brothers and sisters, we're promised to be clothed in white. That signifies our moral purity, our righteous status in the sight of God before his very throne. We will stand there in the multitude without spot and without blemish. Now think about that for a moment in relationship to your sin. It's an astonishing thought, isn't it? You think about your sin, just meditate on your sin for a few moments and then think that because of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that filth washed away in the blood of the Lamb, all of that forgiven, cast into the sea of his forgetfulness, and we will stand before the throne in the very presence of God, in that multitude, without spot and without blemish. There is no launderer's soap that can cleanse our disgrace other than the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? An absolute awesome thought. That's what God does. That's what God does through the death of his own son. He makes that possible, right? Through his word, through his decree, he makes that certain, absolutely sure to all the seed of Abraham. They're clothed in white robes. Awesome. They have palm branches in their hands. The, the reference to palm branches here is a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 23, I'll read that to you very briefly. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 40. I can see that through blurry eyes here. <laughs> uh, under the law, the Lord says to Israel, you shall take for yourselves on the first day of the first, uh, you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, and bows of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. These are booths that they made with those palm branches. This is a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration, a remembrance, if you will, of God's deliverance of the children of Israel when he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. When God was victorious over their enemies, victorious over Pharaoh's army, Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army destroyed, drowned in the Red Sea, and how God provided for them and cared for them in their wilderness wandering. They're living in tents. And God is their protection. God is their uh, provision. So this was a, a celebration, if you will, of God's victory over their enemies, God's protection, and God's provision. They have assurance. These with palm branches in their hands have assurance of God's gracious provision. 
They have assurance of God's gracious protection. And when the Israelites, for example, came into the land, they were to keep this feast uh, yearly. And tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, was meant to communicate God's faithfulness to his promise. God would care for them. In John's vision, think with me now. In John's vision, this consummation, if you will, of the Feast of Tabernacles is being applied to the church, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In John's vision, God is victorious over her enemies. Uh, He has redeemed his people, the church, in their exodus from this world. We are redeemed people. God has nourished and protected them and provided for them during their wilderness pilgrimage. So we're a wilderness people. All of that you see in Revelation 12. We'll get to that text eventually as well. Where as soon as the, the son, the baby is born, uh, the dragon is waiting there to devour him and he is caught up to heaven and to his throne. And what happens with the church? The church is scattered. They're sent into the wilderness where God does what? He nourishes them and cares for them. Just like he did Israel in the wilderness when he brought them up out of Egypt. And so these then, this Feast of Tabernacles, this, this imagery of the palm branch in their hands is meant to celebrate or commemorate God's victory over our enemies, God's protection, God's provision, as he carries us through our own wilderness wandering, having redeemed us in an exodus out of this world, so to speak. And so they carry palm branches. It's another way, if you will, and we'll see these references throughout the book of Revelation. It's another way in which the church is connected to Israel how the church is Israel, how Israel is the church, right? It's another way that the church, the people of God, are seen as one people across two testaments, if you will. Another way of connecting those two. In fact, the Feast of Booths, eventually in Jewish history, began to be thought of as uh, in anticipation of the age of the Messiah. And there were, uh, with the Feast of Tabernacles, um, high messianic expectations associated with that celebration, such that when the Lord Jesus Christ, um, in his triumphal entry, if you remember that text, when the Lord Jesus Christ is coming into Jerusalem, uh, what do we see the people do? They go out of the city to meet him on the road as he comes up into Jerusalem, and they have palm branches in their hands, and they are singing Hosanna, right? Matthew chapter 21, verse 8. A very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is a word that means God saves. God saves. This is, these are messianic expectations, do you see? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're holding palm branches in their hands as a symbol of victory. Palm branches became known as a symbol of God's deliverance, a symbol of God's victory. And here, God has saved his people from their sins in God's gift of his Messiah. So first, what John sees, he sees that multitude clothed in white white robes, palm branches in their hands, All of this loaded with significance, do you see? It's loaded with significance. Finally, last, what John hears then. Verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice, saying, 
he hears this multitude crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. An innumerable multitude crying out, exclaiming, right? Exuberant. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I think it was in in chapter one where we um, hear his voice as the voice of many waters, right? The, The omnipotent power and authority of the lamb, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And now this innumerable multitude proclaiming the praises of him who uh, transfer them out of darkness and into the kingdom of, of light, right? Uh, proclaiming his excellencies, proclaiming his praise and his worship, booming through the vaults of heaven. It must be deafening, right? In the best possible way. Uh, like, I, I've never been, but I hear people talk about standing at the edge of Niagara Falls. We're going to do that eventually. Uh, but to stand at the edge of Niagara Falls and hear that water rush over the edge, um, they say it's absolutely deafening. And that's the way that. Uh, the Lord describes the voice in Revelation chapter one, what it must sound like here. Just the, the deafening sound of this great multitude, enthusiastic, exuberant joy, worshiping the one who is seated on the throne and worshiping the lamb. That's only possible if the lamb is God. Do you see? This is again, Trinitarian worship. God, one God in three persons proclaiming the praises of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. The angels then add their praise. They glorify God for the multitude. It's amazing. Verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen. (laughs) So again, the thought of an innumerable multitude praising God, praising the lamb. And then a host of angels, which no one can number, adding their amen to the worship. Amen, the angels proclaim. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Right? And only God, only God possesses those sovereign perfections, glory and wisdom, power and might. Only God, worthy of such blessing and glory and thanksgiving and honor. And all of this, brothers and sisters, the church in her consummated glory, right? The church in her consummated worship. Can you imagine the sight? One day we're going to see it. One day we're going to see it. One day our faith will become sight when we'll see him as he is. And we'll be there in the midst. And you know who will be there with us? Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, singing praises in the midst of his brethren, right? Singing choruses of praise with us. It's going to be awesome. Let that encourage you. Right? Let that encourage you when things get tough here, when you face trials and difficulties, tribulation. When you face suffering, when you face persecution, when you have a bad day, (laughs) just think on that for a moment, right? Think about where we are headed. The Bible everywhere tells us to fix our eyes on the hope of the church and let that encourage you. Hope of the church is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and our ushering into heavenly glory.
I love our worship here. And often think about that um, on the Lord's Day when you can stand in this auditorium and you can hear the people of God sing, right? The singing is not drowned out, drowned out by guitars or drums. Uh, it's not drowned out by speakers. Uh, you hear the people of God singing. Uh, in particular, I love Robinson's playing, but in particular when Robinson drops out for a moment and we hear the people singing a cappella, it's just a tremendous, um, tremendous sound, isn't it? Like a, just a, an encouraging sound, an uplifting sound. It's, and to, our worship here is also exuberant, most of you, <laughs> where people don't just sing, they sing loud. They sing, and we should sing loud. <laughs> we should sing with enthusiasm. Do you think there's anyone, 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 anyone in that innumerable multitude who will stand before the throne of God singing, Behold, God, seated on... No. Uh, uh, that's not going to happen. The worship of heaven is exuberant worship, joyful worship, loud worship, the voice, the, a unified voice of an innumerable multitude, the angels joining in. It's going to be absolutely awesome. Let that encourage you. Right? Things here uh, can seem small. They can seem insignificant in this little outpost in the sticks. Not so. Not so. Fix your eyes on the hope of the church. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above that's, where, that's what the book of Revelation is intended to do for us. It is intended to fix our eyes on things that are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. When you set your mind on things of the earth, you better watch out. Be careful that the cares of this world don't creep up like thorns and choke out the word of God. Right, Because, verse 3, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, he is our life. And when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a day that will be. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Amen. We long for it. We look forward to it. Lord, come quickly. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the encouragement that this text gives, this wonderful um, worship service, this majestic multitude around the throne, worshiping and praising you and the Lamb in heaven. And Lord, what a, a joy it gives us to even contemplate, even to meditate on these things, uh, knowing that, Lord, you have uh, promised and that you are faithful to your word, you will fulfill and you've given us your spirit as the pledge, as the guarantee of that glorious inheritance. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that that gives us. Lord, I pray that that encouragement applied by your spirit would be fruitful in preserving us as we walk through this Christian life in this dark world as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ, that it would strengthen us as often we feel weak 
uh, insignificant, that it would encourage us, as it might appear um, often that the wicked prosper, we know, Lord, that you are seated upon the throne, decreed, having decreed all things whatsoever that come to pass, and now through your providence, working all things according to their appointed end. That we praise you, Lord, that it is so. Help us, Lord, as we live for you during this time. And may we be a fruitful people. Make us, Lord, a fruitful people for your name's sake. Um, make us, conform us into the image of your son. Make us fit for heaven, we pray, God, during this time. Consecrate us more and more to ourselves. As brother was preaching this morning, Lord, grow us in our knowledge of you. And we might grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Lord, make us like your son and glorify your own name through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.